Luke just for the next three weeks, just so you know kind of the path we're on here. We got, uh, we're going to do three weeks of uh, a brief series on membership and uh, on church membership, and we're going to talk about what a church member is and represents this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, next week what a church member does, and then uh, three weeks from now, Lord willing, we will talk about kind of our, our, our own handling of church membership at Seaford Baptist, how we've done so far and, and what our plan is for it going forward. Uh, then as we uh, we'll, we'll head into the, the fall, we'll get back into Luke. We will ride Luke out all the way to Advent season. And then again, Lord willing, we will finish Luke at the beginning of 2023. It's crazy to think we're already talking about 2023, but uh, we're, we're kind of heading into the last quarter here, um, amazingly enough. So um, excited about what is to come, but we're going to talk a little bit about church membership during the month of August. And so let's start this study by using our imaginations. Imagine you're a journalist and you moved to the Ukraine like October of last year, all right? You're an American, you're young. You, uh, you, you just, you know, finished up your, your master's in geopolitical journal journalism. You're really excited to get out on the field and to use these skills and to put them into practice. As you get to the Ukraine, you make nice new Ukrainian friends, Ivan and Nina. And you go to Dinamo Kiev soccer games and you support the, the blues and the whites. And you go to concerts on the weekends and you have embraced the uh, vibrant electronic music scene that exists in Kiev. And just as you're settling into your new and exciting Ukrainian life, you get a message from the United States government saying, hey, uh, the Russians are going to invade the country, and you need to get out of there if you can. Now, this is really not an option for you, because you have literally spent uh, your entire educational life preparing to be a journalist in the area of geopolitics. So when there's a Russian invasion on the ground, the last thing you want to do is leave. You want to stay there and cover the thing. So you're going to stay, but the American embassy has said, at the very least, you need to make sure all your documentation is in order in case there is some sort of, you know, emergency evacuation. So you're like, well, that's reasonable. You go back to your apartment, you're thumbing through all your documents, and you realize you can't find anything. You can't find any of the things that say you have the right to be in the Ukraine as a United States citizen working there. You've got nothing. What are you going to do? You need to prove your citizenship. You need to prove that you are in the Ukraine as a representative citizen of the United States who is on a mission abroad. You need to get the authorization to even stay there and continue to represent the United States as one of her citizens and to do your job. What do you do? So just let that imaginary scene sit in the back of your head for a little bit. We'll be back to it, all right? With that in mind, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5, where we'll spend our time together. A little bit of background. If you've been hanging out with us on Wednesday nights, you should be pretty familiar with the Corinthians. We spent a year studying the letter to uh, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Um, this morning we're in 2 Corinthians. Corinth is a church that the Apostle Paul planted, a deeply flawed church, aren't, aren't they all, right? Um, but also deeply loved by Paul as their pastor. 
And so he writes his first letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus. He writes the second letter to them shortly after he's wrapped up his ministry in Ephesus, so probably around 56 AD. The first letter deals with all sorts of practical issues that uh, the Corinthians are struggling with. There's a lot of dysfunction in their church about things like division and marriage and all sorts of stuff. And so Paul sets them straight in letter one. In letter two, these Corinthians have been duped into believing that Paul is not in a a real uh, gospel preacher apostle, and they have started to follow these guys that are quote-unquote super apostles who say they're superior to Paul. And so 2 Corinthians is Paul defending his ministry, really, to the Corinthians, saying, hey, don't listen to these people. They're preaching another gospel. Listen to me. Listen to my crew. You know us. We started the church there. We love you. We wouldn't lie to you. And here's all the reasons that you can trust me. And so that's what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 5. He's giving a detailed account of his ministry, and he is defending his ministry. So we pick it up there in the midst of that, 2 Corinthians 5. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the passage. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to remember you. Lord, we've remembered you in your faithfulness to us in song. We have remembered your faithfulness to us in the Lord's Supper. We have seen the gospel in the Lord's Supper. The, the exchange we're about to see in the, in the uh, passage this morning in the text, we've seen it at the table, Lord. You've given us these visuals to remember who you are. And Lord, today now we kind of want to know who we are. We, we, we know who you are, but um, we need to remember who we are, what it means to be a church member, what it means to belong to the local body of Christ here at Seaford and in general. And uh, I pray, God, you would speak, not just today, but over the next few weeks, and that, uh, Lord, you would uh, convict us to take the issue of membership seriously, that the mission may advance, God, because that's what we care about. We want to see your kingdom expand. We want to see more people that don't worship you start worshiping you. And we want to handle church membership in such a way that it's going to advance the kingdom. So be with us, Lord, not only this morning, but in our study over the next few weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to focus on verses 17 through 21, but I'm going to start reading in verse 11 just to give us some context. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
We're going to go back to our, our young journalists living in the Ukraine for, uh, here in a moment. Uh, but I want to start just by looking at this passage today. Uh, because in it, we see the, the heart of the gospel. And in it, we also can understand what a church member is. At the very core of the gospel message we see in this passage, there is a piece of good news called imputation. Okay? Not amputation, all right? Imputation. Imputation is the act of charging something to an account. I once heard a story of a juror in the state of New York who was helping to issue a verdict on a credit card fraud trial. So she's a juror in this trial. During the trial, she steals the credit card of one of her fellow jurors, goes out during lunch, spends a bunch of money, one of the other, the, the juror who had the card stolen realizes it mid-trial, okay, as this is going on, calls the police. The police come into the courtroom in the middle of the trial and arrest this juror for stealing the credit card from the other juror, all right? Imagine you being on trial for the credit card fraud and seeing somebody else arrested for it in the middle of the trial. It would be a wild scene. There was imputation that took place there, right? This juror went out with a credit card that did not belong to her and charged things to this account that did not belong to her, right? Imputed those charges to that account. That's a bad sort of imputation, okay? Here, we get a positive sort of imputation uh, in the case where one died for all, right? You see that in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one, talking about Jesus, has died for all. He has died for the church. The sin of the church, your sin and my sin, was imputed to Christ. It was reckoned to Christ. It was accounted to him. Sin that he did not commit was charged to him. Which is why verse 21 says, for our sake he, talking about God the Father, made him, talking about God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. And yet the imputation that we find at the heart of the gospel is not done yet because there is a second transaction that takes place. Not only is your sin charged to the account of Christ, but we also find that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you. And Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. So it's a scandalous exchange that has taken place here. I have all this sin that I've committed. Jesus has committed no sin. My sin is charged to his account at the cross where he suffers and dies for my sin. Right? The same thing is true of you. The sin you've committed is charged to his account. And yet, there's this second transaction where not only does Christ take the punishment for sin he did not commit, but then he takes his righteousness and he gives it to you so that you get credit for obedience that you did not perform. This is called grace, right? This is the incredible love of God that he looks at you and because of your faith in Christ, he doesn't see your sin, he just sees the perfect righteousness of his son. So Jesus takes our sin, Jesus gives us his righteousness. We were cosmic rebels who had turned our backs on the very one who had given us breath. We committed treason against him. We tried to steal his crown. We tried to take his spot. We tried to de-God him, if you will, right? We tried to claim his divinity as our birthright. 
We tried to run our lives by our own authority. And because of this, we were walking dead. We had placed ourselves outside of a relationship with him, outside of um, innocence in his moral court. And we placed ourselves firmly in the crosshairs of his divine judgment. But he removes us from the foot of the judge's platform, and he takes our place there. Christ never rebelled against his father. He never committed any sort of moral treason against his father. Jesus, in his pre-incarnate glory and in the flesh, was as good as good can be and continues to be purely good. To be as holy as the father himself. There was not a speck of sin. There was not a hint of sin. There was not a modicum of sin in his being. He always did what was right. He never did what was right out of some sort of selfish pride. He always did what was right out of a desire for the glory of God and for the name of God to be honored. He always loved correctly. He rebuked correctly. He thought correctly. He spoke correctly. He prayed correctly. He was totally, transcendently, above and beyond sinless. And yet voluntarily stood in our place as the punishment bearer. Voluntarily stood in our place as the law keeper we could never be. He lived the life we should have been living. And then he died the death that we should have died. And now we are spiritually connected back to God. And we are legally in right standing with God because of our union with Jesus. When the Father looks at the believer, he doesn't see your sin anymore, your rebellion anymore, he just sees the imputed righteousness, the imputed innocence, the imputed perfection of his beloved Son who laid his life down for us. This gospel exchange is how an individual is reconciled to God. Look at verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is how somebody becomes a new creation in Christ. Through this gospel exchange, the old passes away, verse 17, the new has come. I heard a story one time about Martin Luther and how he would come to the church every Sunday and he would preach the gospel and one of his church members grabbed him and said, Luther, brother, when are you going to preach something else? You know, it's gospel every week. Gospel, gospel, gospel. When will there be something else? And, and Luther said, when you stop walking in here looking like a people who have forgotten it, then I'll stop preaching it. And of course, he preached it till the day he died, because every week we walk in here looking like a people who have forgotten uh, this, this gospel message, this gospel exchange. The people that I've met, I've been doing this now for, uh, I don't know, try to count it up in my head, but um, I guess about 17 years, which there's a lot of people who have done it a lot longer than me. But in 17 years in four different churches, the majority of which I've spent here in this church, what I've found is that the people who walk closest with Jesus are people who don't move on from this message. They don't want to move on from it. They can't move on from it. They, they just sit in it, they revel in it, they meditate upon it, they're not ready for something else, they have discovered the gospel, they have seen this exchange of righteousness for sin, and they are consumed with Jesus and his cross. He is their Lord, he's all they want. And what the gospel does is it takes people like that and it makes humble men out of them. And it makes wise women out of them forgiving and patient brothers and sisters out of them, compassionate servants who would give the shirt off their back to help people understand this gospel that has transformed their lives. Paul is a guy like this. 
And Paul, in an attempt to defend his ministry to the Corinthians, to defend it against his critics, who'd been dragging his name through the mud, here he's not just proclaiming the glory of the gospel in this text. He's saying, this is our ministry, folks. He's like, these people accusing me of this, that, and the other. Like, if you look at my ministry, if you take it apart, and and you look at all the nuts and bolts of it, all you're going to see is the gospel. The whole ministry is built on this message. Paul is one of these people that doesn't move on from the cross. He's obsessed with it, right? And that is evident in his ministry. So look at verse 18. The ministry of reconciliation he sees as a gift from God. It has been given to him by God. Look in verse 19. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. Paul knows that... God is reconnecting people to him through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of his son. Therefore, Paul's running around going, hey, Jesus died for your sin. Jesus resurrected from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand. Turn from your sin and put your trust in him. Be baptized. He's just running from city to city saying this, and when he's got enough people who are saying it with him, he starts a church and then he moves on to the next place and he does it there as well. This is Paul's life. He doesn't move on from the gospel. He's consumed by it. And he's just running around telling people about it. With all that in mind, let's go back to our situation in the Ukraine with the journalist who's lost their documentation. What would you do? Well, and I'm going to mispronounce this, so if you're here and you're Ukrainian, we love you. We're praying for your people, and I'm sorry about what I'm about to do here. Um, you would go to Avia Constructor Igor Sikorsky Street. I think I, I came close, all right? In, in Kiev, Ukraine, you would go to that address, Building 4. It's a very ugly building, if we're being honest with ourselves, all right? It's big, it's blocky, it's not attractive, it's utilitarian, it's surrounded by a very daunting fence. Looks like the haunted mansion at Disney World. Um, That's the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine. An embassy is an institution that represents one nation inside of another nation. It declares the home nation's interest to the host nation, and it protects the citizens of the home nation who are living in the host nation. So if you were a journalist with missing documentation in Kiev, you would go to the embassy to get the documentation you needed. They would not make you a U.S. citizen. Understand that. You are already a U.S. citizen if you, are, if, if, if you are a U.S. citizen by birth. It's your birth that makes you a U.S. citizen, right? They simply would be affirming your citizenship. They're not making you a citizen. They're affirming your citizenship. So if we go back to our text and we look at verse 20, here's what Paul says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So keeping in mind the American embassy in the Ukraine, we can start to understand what Paul's saying in this passage. But the difference between the church and the U.S. embassy in the Ukraine is that the church represents a kingdom that is not only in the present, but it's also in the future. It represents a whole group of people who will gather together as one nation under Christ's rule at the end of history. In Revelation 21, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a vision of what's going to happen in the end when the Lamb judges and destroys the kings and the nations who have uh, opposed Him and rebelled against Him, and He will gather together the kings of the earth and the nations whose names are written in the book of life, and they will come into the eternal city of God, and they will lay their glory at His feet. And the gates of the city will never be shut because there will no longer be a threat of an enemy attacking and there will be no sun or moon because the glory of God will be the light. That kingdom is to come. But that kingdom is also present now. We represent that kingdom in the here and now on the earth as an embassy and a foreign kingdom. Right? You understand what I'm saying there? This world is not our home. Our home is heaven. Our home is the kingdom that we will spend eternity in living under the rule of Christ. But until that time comes, we represent that kingdom now inside of this foreign world that is not our home. We are the representation of Christ's rule to this foreign world that only knows the rule of their own hearts, their own lostness, their own ignorance. And like the U.S. Embassy does to the Ukraine, we proclaim the laws of God's kingdom to this foreign land and protect the citizens of His kingdom within this alien territory. So Jonathan Lehman, who's writing on this, I think is the best, says in his book, Church Membership, the local church is a real-life embassy set in the present that represents Christ's future kingdom and His coming universal church. A question people will often ask is, where is church membership at in the Bible? Well, you might not see the exact term, and by the way, that's not a reason to panic. You don't see the term Trinity in the Bible either, but the concept of the three and the one and the one and three Godhead is clearly there, right? At Jesus' baptism, you can see it. The Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The Son is baptized in the water, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. So if you want to see the Trinity, there's the Trinity, right? It's, it's right there in the text. But you don't see the word Trinity. And I think when we want to see the words church membership in the New Testament text, we're looking for something spiritual to be explained in worldly terms we're looking at the church like it's a club to join so we're searching for a club word like membership within the scriptures but we're not a club we're not a labor union we're not a health spa we're not a political party the church is much more like a nation and a people you see it described this way in first peter 2 and when you talk about the people of a nation you talk about it in terms of citizenship Clubs begin with a common point of interest, but the church has much more than that. We have a, we have a, a national identity as God's people. First Peter 2 verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. There is a gathering that has taken place. We did not have a nation, but now we've been gathered together as a holy nation living under the government of God, under the rule of God Himself. Clubs start with a common point of interest. The church starts with a king who requires the obedience of his people. 
So it's not that the Bible doesn't talk about church membership. It just doesn't talk about church membership in the way that you might want it to. Instead of membership, we get concepts and metaphors to explain how the church is God's people gathered together under His supreme rule, representing Him in the here and now. So the New Testament then will explain it using the metaphor of a vine, or of a family, or a priesthood, or a chosen race, or a body, or an embassy. But there's spiritual language there for spiritual understanding and for the betterment of God's people. And by the way, just in case you need a chapter and verse that says the word member in it as it relates to the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So if you need to tick the box, you can tick it. When you talk about the embassy, you also have to talk about the ambassador. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. So it's clear from Paul's writing here that not only is he an ambassador, but everybody else who is a new creation in Christ that has had the ministry of reconciliation entrusted to them, the message of the gospel that they go around and preach so other people can also be reconciled, they're also ambassadors. There's a therefore you see in verse 20, right? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And that therefore refers to everything Paul's been building on since verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Therefore, they are an ambassador for Christ. If he's a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come, therefore they are an ambassador for Christ. If the new has come, they've received the ministry of reconciliation, meaning they've been charged to go out and preach the gospel, therefore they are an ambassador for Christ. And if they've received the ministry of reconciliation, then they are ambassadors for Christ to a world that does not know him. They're representing Christ. So then what is a church member's identity as they leave and they go out in the world every week? You're going to walk out of here in about 20 minutes. What's your identity? Well, you were going out there as an ambassador for Christ, and if you're a member of this church, you're an ambassador that we have met, we have talked to, we have looked at the spiritual fruit in your life, and we have affirmed your citizenship in the heavenly kingdom, and we have said, yes, we recognize that just like us, Christ has given you the ministry of reconciliation, therefore join up with us as this local embassy as we go out and we represent the interests of Christ's kingdom to this foreign world. This is what happens, right? Somebody walks to the door. If you're here today and you're a visitor with us, and you were to come up to me afterwards and say, I want to join your church this Wednesday night at your business meeting, at your members meeting, I would say to you, I love the enthusiasm, you can't do that. Love you so much, excited you're here, I want to go on this journey with you, we do want you to join ultimately, I cannot put you on a list and vote on you after only knowing you for three days, because we don't know if you're an ambassador. We can't put the ambassador name tag on somebody and send you out into the world and say, go preach Christ if we don't even know if you know Christ. So that's why we we try our best. It's not not perfect, right? Because we're not God, but we try our best to discern when people come into our doors, to talk to them, to get to know them, trying to make sure the Holy Spirit dwells in them. They're converted. They've repented of their sin. They put their trust in Christ. Um, They're not running from some bad situation at another embassy where they like wrecked the place and then they ran off to go find a new church after they left that one burning. Like we want to find all that out. And then if everything's good, then we go, yep, you're a citizen, and we are happy for you 
to be an ambassador that represents the kingdom here with us at Seaford Baptist Church. It isn't that the church is granting citizenship to God's kingdom to people. Only God does that. But we affirm what God has done. And more than that, the church is then saying to the people, you are now one of us. We're comfortable sending you out as a full-blown ambassador for the kingdom of Christ. You're now entering your mission field. Go be His workmanship, right? When we grant membership to people, we are signing off on their salvation, affirming their salvation, affirming their witness, slapping that name tag on them and saying, we agree, you're a Christian, so join us in representing this glorious kingdom to a foreign land. Jonathan Lehman again says, a church member is a person who has been officially and publicly recognized as Christian before the nations. To be clear, church member is more than just this. Next week, God willing, we'll talk about how the church gathers and how the church serves and builds and how membership relates to that. But I wanted to start with this embassy metaphor because it is important that we understand the church representing God's kingdom to a foreign nation. To understand that this is why we're here. We don't exist for our own pleasure. We as a church do not exist to meet the comforts of ourselves. We do not exist to be consumers. We don't exist to be a cruise ship on land or another club or service provider among many in this world. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ as ambassadors of Christ in a foreign nation. We exist to be his workmanship and walk in the good works that he has laid out for us. And if you're wondering, does Jesus really, does he really care about all this church membership stuff? The kings and governors of temporary nations and states of this world are not careless about whom they recognize as citizens. Do you really think the king of the universe would care less than they do? We must care about it. We must care about who we sign off on as ambassadors. To the best of our grace-driven ability, we should try to make sure that everybody we send out to represent the kingdom knows the king. Now, you might ask, well, how do we know? How do we know what a Christian does? Well, we do have a document for that that's been built off the scriptures. It's our church covenant. Our church covenant shows us what ambassador life should look like for each individual member of the church. If they're faithfully living the ambassador life with the rest of the ambassadors here at Seaford Baptist, they'll uphold this covenant. So what we're going to do to close uh, as we dedicate ourselves to the Lord during this time is we're going to read the church covenant together. When we see somebody living out these commitments and these promises, then we know they are kingdom ambassadors. We can trust them to represent the kingdom well. Or sometimes they like move into our area and they're like, hey, we're from Topeka. We want to join your church. And then we can get in touch with that church in Topeka and say, did they burn the place down or are they good ambassadors? And they say they're good ambassadors. And we say, all right, we're excited to have them here then, right? But when we see somebody living out these commitments in the covenant, then we know, put the name tag on them. They're ready to go out and preach the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation just like us. So let's stand together, and here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm, I'll read, and there's these like bold parts, and uh, I will lift my hand up like this, like some sort of, um, you know, back in the day, 
Tommy Mann at Red Lane Baptist Church would come up and say, we're going to sing verses 1, 3, and 4, and he would hold his hand up, and that's how we knew when to sing, okay? So, I, you know, now we have these. Uh, but when I get to the bold parts, I'll lift my hand, and I want you to join with me. So, having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in Jesus, having given ourselves to him, and having been baptized following our profession of faith, we, relying on God's grace, joyfully enter into this covenant with each other to seek to walk worthy of the calling we have received by growing in Christ-like character, through attending and participating in worship faithfully, through reading and studying God's Word, through consistent prayer, through participation in a Sunday school class or a small group, protecting the unity of our church, by working hard at relational harmony. By the way, that in, in layman terms means don't be a jerk, Okay through practically meeting the needs of other believers, by seeking to use our words for positive good, through seeking reconciliation according to Matthew 18, 15 through 17, when conflict arises with another member, living out the implications of the gospel toward the world, through demonstrating the love of Jesus through hands-on ministry to the community, through finding ways to share the good news of Jesus, through faithful financial giving to support the work of this church and its ministry to the world. In participating in the ministry of our church, by discovering our gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve by and with our pastors, by developing a servant's heart. This is our covenant. This is how we define faithfulness to ambassador life. If you are a church member standing here this morning, it's a good time for you to take account of your own life and to ask, am I upholding all of the aspects of the covenant myself? If you're thinking about joining our church, it's a good time for you to consider the, um, the standards that we have for this is what a church member does, this is what ambassador life looks like. And also as we go forward and we think about the reality that this morning we have about 600 names on our church roll that do not attend here at Seaford Baptist. We think about, can we really be sure they are living this ambassador life? Can we really be sure the name tag of ambassador for Christ should be on them? We'll think about that more in the coming weeks. Let's pray together right now. Father God, thank you.